starting with verse 12, Luke chapter 5. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for yourself, uh, for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought a man on a bed who was paralyzed whom they sought to bring in and lay him before him. But when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let down with his bed through the tiling in the midst of before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and Pharisees begin to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would hear from you, that the Spirit of the Lord would fill this place. We know you're here. We felt you in the worship time as we opened in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would now speak mightily through your word. Lord, remove me that people would only hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. A story is told of a man who loved old books. He met an acquaintance who had just thrown away a Bible that, he, that had been stored in the attic of his ancestral home for generations. I couldn't read it, the friend explained. Somebody named Guten something had printed it. Not Gutenberg, the book lover exclaimed in horror. That Bible was one of the first books ever printed. Why, a copy just sold for over $2 million dollars. His friend was unimpressed. He said, mine wouldn't have brought a dollar. Some fellow named Martin Luther had scribbled all over it in German. <laughs> Two men, one fully aware of the immense value that had been foolishly tossed into the wastebasket, the other, in his ignorance, convinced that he had lost nothing at all. And so it is, wherever Jesus went in his earthly ministry, and still is today, wherever his name and wherever his gospel is proclaimed, for some, they come to recognize Jesus as their only hope, the one who can change them, rescue them, forgive them, and heal them. They come to see Jesus is the pearl of great price, the spotless Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of all kings. For others, they don't see it. To them, he's no different than any other religious figure. For some, they've heard how he died for their sins, but they don't see that as important or life-changing in any meaningful way. For others, they think Jesus possibly could help them. Possibly. But even if he could, it wouldn't come close 
to the help they'd receive by winning the Mega Millions lottery jackpot. For some, they think they're doing just fine on their own. Things are good, and they don't need the religious crutch of the weak, uninformed, and easily fooled, like us. Still others, they're too busy right now. Way too much going on to waste time investigating the claims of Jesus. They might someday take that time when they're done doing everything else they want to do and plan to do. True? Two groups. Same information, same Jesus, same gospel, but many different responses, but effectively they fall into two. A few years ago, when I was still bivocational, still pastoring this church and also still in the business world, I had gone on a business trip, I was out, out of the country uh, with another colleague. We had worked together for nearly 10 years. He was well aware of my commitment to Christ, my role as a pastor, etc., And every now and then we'd have those spiritual discussions. It'd be brief, but sporadic. And I mentioned a few things on this trip as well, just here and there. Now, this trip was very important uh, business-wise, but it ended up being comical uh, in a number of ways, at least to me, not as much to him. And I believe the Lord was speaking even through small little details. You ever seen God speak to yourself and to other people in small little details? And people know when God is speaking small details, they just kind of push it away. Deep down they know that God is speaking. Well, the first one, we, we had to fly out in the evening. It was like a 9.30 flight and you were going to fly all night. We were going to meet up with other colleagues from other cities and even a couple of colleagues from another country. And so we, you know, flew out of uh, Dulles around 10 o'clock at night. It's going to be one of them all-night flights. And the, and the arrangement of the flights was a 2-3-2, you know, in, in the planes, a 2-3-2. So you have two seats, aisle, three seats, aisle, two seats. 2-3-2 arrangement. And um, I, had, I had booked an aisle seat. He had booked an aisle seat. Both of us hated middle seats. When I got on the plane, my aisle seat was no longer an aisle seat on my boarding ticket. So I got stuck in the middle. I've got these two big guys with Bose speakers on their ears, and I'm like, great, you know, here I am. He got his nice aisle seats, no one beside him. He looks at me like, tough to be you, kind of thing. <laughs> but as it, you know, they closed the gate, you know, they closed the plane and everything, and, and I noticed that to my right, there was two empty seats, I, I, people that just never showed up or whatever, two empty seats, and the flight attendant said, Mr. White, you can have these two seats right here. So then I got to relax and spread out. And so the, I got a, a larger seat, which uh, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. We were coming back a few days. And other, other little things happened along the way. I won't go to all of them. But uh, when we were coming back um, uh, on the flight back five days later, uh, you know, we try and print our boarding passes at hotels and, and already have them. So when you're able to board, I couldn't print mine. For whatever reason, it would not print. His printed, so we, uh, he's like, oh, great. Now, because yours didn't print, we're going to get all held up at the airport, and we're not going to be able to just roll right through. And uh, like, what am I supposed to do? Print, you know, so we get there, and so I had to go to the kiosk and get mine printed out. I get mine printed out. He goes straight to customs, and they wouldn't accept his boarding pass. <laughs> Something was wrong on it. So he had to go down to the ticket counter and go through the whole process. The kiosk wouldn't even work for his. So I'm waiting on the other side for him like this for like 40 minutes until he gets through. And now we are held up, but it wasn't my boarding pass that wouldn't print. It was his that would print. So then he's like, we better go straight to the gate. We better go straight to the gate. And I said, I think I have time to grab something to eat. Because on the way over, I didn't like the, you know, it was, it was uh, I, mean, I was glad I did because on the way back, it was lemon custard. And I even like citrus, but I didn't like custard. But uh, I, I got, and he goes, he goes, you can't get something right now. We're, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we need to get straight in line. I said, I think I have time. Now, those of you who know me, I always think I have time for one more thing. <laughs> That's not a character goodness. That's actually a flaw. But, uh, but this time I had a, I, I, I seriously, I had a piece that like, 
all right, I used to try and fit four more things in, now I only try and fit one in. So I said, all right, I'll just go ahead and, uh, I'll just go ahead and uh, grab something real quick. He said, well, I'm going on to the gate. I grab something, I get to the gate, and the ladies, no sooner did I walk up, she goes, ladies and gentlemen, you can all have a seat. We're going to have a 40-minute delay. So I'm sitting there just eating. and uh, <laughs> So then we get back to the States, and um, we, we, go to, uh, we go to his car. And we get in this car, and we're, headed, we're about to head back. And someone had put a track on his windshield, lifted up the wiper, and put a gospel track there. He's about to back out of the parking garage, and he's like, what is this? Well, he didn't say stuff. Um, that was stuffed on the... Uh, so he gets out and pulls it out and crumples it up. And he goes, what is it? I said, that, that was a gospel track. Because I knew exactly what it was. I saw the writing on it. I saw the book of John or something on there. I said, that was a gospel track. And he goes, well, why would they put it on my car? I said, maybe someone wants you to hear the gospel, you know? And I had shared these things before, but I wasn't going to, like, you know, make, this, make him more uncomfortable. The Lord was speaking pretty clearly. But my point is, in that little piece of paper that got crumpled up, thrown to the ground. I, think, I can't remember where he threw it, whether it was in his car or on the ground. Uh, in that little folded piece of paper, smashed and crumbled up, worth about two cents, was the power of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You believe that? Even in a little tiny track, One verse has the power. If someone will believe what is written by God himself, to change them. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he literally walked into Galilean and Judean villages and the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Almighty God, was not only in him and upon him, but he was God. And he had the power to change a person's life Instantly, but not just instantly, but for all eternity. For all eternity. Because life here is pretty short, isn't it? Those of you that remember 1990, you know how short it is. How quickly it moves. Now today, Jesus walks into people's lives. Instead of walking into villages, he walks into our people's lives, like he walked into ours. He walks into lives through a conversation over coffee, doesn't he? In a hotel drawer, when someone looks and sees a Bible, and something in their conscience says, open it. But they shut the drawer and grab the remote. Maybe a visit to church from a Christian who has bugged them, I mean invited them more than once. A sudden or serious illness strikes, and a believer says, can I pray for you? Perhaps a bumper sticker that is always annoyed, but this time it spoke to someone for some reason. And then there are those nagging thoughts as someone is lying in bed all awake, and they begin to wonder, where will I be in 40 years? Where will I be in 40 years? Where will all of us be in 40 years? I'd be 95, and I don't think I'm making it to 95. Hopefully the Lord comes back. But if someone doesn't know the Lord, that's God walking into their conscience saying, where will you be in 40 years? If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word Day, The Power is Present. The power is present. And the three things that we'll look at in today's text. He's willing, he's waiting, and he's washing. He's willing. He is willing, isn't he? He's waiting, and he's washing. Praise the Lord, he's washing people right now. Someone in the world is getting saved this very moment somewhere on planet Earth. Isn't that great? And you and I have nothing to do with it, in a sense. Well, completely nothing to do with it. If we ever have any role at all, it's just by the grace of God. It's all the sovereign, supernatural work of God. It was funny, uh, one more thing about that track. When we were backing up, I didn't see a track on any other car. 
Because I looked. I was like, why did someone feel led to put it there? They might have had one track. I've done that. And I always wonder, Lord, I pray when I put this here, I hope that this is exactly the car or the person that you want to speak to. But God does move in so many different ways. And he walks into our lives. And his power is present, isn't it? It's always present. Look at verse uh, 12 here, and it happened. When he was in a certain city, behold, a man who was full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. This man was a walking death sentence. This is equivalent to radically advanced stage four cancer, somebody who uh, has been given very little time left to live by doctors. It was a walking death sentence. Remember, Luke was a physician. So Luke's details are significant. When Luke said he was full of leprosy, Luke is saying very advanced, very, very advanced stage. This was well beyond anyone's capacity to live that long. He describes this man as full of it, full of leprosy. Now to the Jews in this area, and all the Jews uh, in what would have been ancient Judea as well as Galilee, to the Jews... This man was not only a threat to everyone because of the contagious condition of leprosy, but he was also ceremonially unclean. In other words, unclean via the law. The law of Moses made him unclean to be near. Obviously, the contagious condition was problematic as well. To them, he was physically and spiritually filthy to them. Great way to treat someone, right, that's actually dying. To us, you're physically and spiritually filthy. Stay far, 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 far away from all of us, as the law says. And you guys are going to get us all sick. But he saw Jesus. Look at it in your own Bibles. It says, he saw Jesus. His eyes still worked enough to see Jesus. He knew who he was for some reason, whether Jesus had come through before, because Jesus had passed through many of these cities already. He recognized him. He either knew from other people's description, other people that had been healed, here's what to look for. He recognized that is Yeshua. That is Jesus. And he comes and goes towards him. And you have to wonder what he's thinking. What he's thinking. Would Jesus care about me? Would he really care about me? None of the other religious leaders, I mean, the guys that are actually the priesthood, they don't care about me. In fact, they care nothing for me. Would he really care for me? I know he's helped others, but would he help me? I know he's healed other people. I've heard about it. I've heard other people's telling what he did for them, but would he do the same for me? If we go back to what Jesus read back in chapter 4, when he stood up and he read from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To heal. Not just to heal physically, but also the brokenhearted. He had come to heal, hadn't he? Jesus had come expressly to heal. He had come to the brokenhearted. He had come to set men free. John 1.14, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace. Full of grace. Overflowing with grace. You and I aren't overflowing with grace. We... Our grace has a very low threshold for people. They don't meet our standard. We kind of either let them know or in our minds we let them know. Right? But Jesus is different. His standard, his grace was overflowing. And notice the man's approach, though. He fell on his face and implored him. Falls on his face. Falls flat on his face. Now, if you've ever ministered to people 
in bad situations, if you've gone to hospitals, if you've ministered to people who are sick, uh, you'll find some varied responses from people. I've met people that are extremely bitter about their health condition, extremely bitter. Mad at God like you would not believe. And the idea of falling on their face is not going to happen. Because how dare I go through this? That's not this man's response, is it? Yes, he didn't like the condition any more than you would or I would. But at some level, he falls on his face and says, whether or not I understand why I'm in this condition, I'm falling at your face begging for mercy. Not, not the attitude of, well, if anyone deserves a healing, it's a guy who's in, been in leprosy for all these years. If anyone deserves healing, it's me. You healed people of way lesser things. This guy had stage one leprosy. I have stage four leprosy. Now, I, I know that, uh, again, people that are very sick, very have illnesses, it's our job to have complete compassion. But yet the Lord... For every single individual, we still must humble ourselves regardless of the condition. Amen? And he does. He does. He implores Jesus. He falls at his face and just asks Jesus a simple question. Lord, if you're willing. That's the question. Lord, if you are willing... I think you can make me clean. Boy, there's a little faith there, isn't it? There's humility and faith. Boy, when you have humility and faith together, the Lord smiles upon it. It's not that God doesn't want to uh, help each and every person, but there is a condition that we must present ourselves in. Humility and Lord, I believe. Would you? I believe you can is what he's saying. Notice Jesus' response. And he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. <laughs> Done deal. All the things that you know, we have doctors and we have all, all the modern medicine, we don't have a doctor on earth that can do this. Go in and see the heart surgeon at Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins or Sloan Kettering or any of the top f- facilities in the United States. There's not a single one of those physicians say, I've heard your condition, be healed. What? No, we're not, we're not going to use laser surgery. I'm not going to cut you open. We're not going to put you into anesthesia. I'm just simply saying you're healed, done. Go home to your house, enjoy the rest of your life. They can't do that. But Jesus can. I'm willing. You're healed. See, Jesus, he desires to bring healing and wholeness more than we actually want it. I know that's hard for us to understand because he actually knows our deepest thoughts better than we know our own deepest thoughts. He desires to do these things more than we desire them done. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, he healed so many people. We see some more even here. Uh, lame, sick, diseased. And Luke, as a physician, I've mentioned this before, but Luke records more of these healings than any other gospel writer. Why? Because Luke, as a doctor, was the most amazed. Luke had been working with people's health issues for his career. And he's like, he did things. I spent years trying to get this person healthy. Jesus walks up and says, get up and walk. See you later. Luke as a physician, was incredibly amazed at what Jesus was doing with his just spoken word, touching people, whatever he did. And Luke recorded more of these than any other writer. But more than healing bodies, Jesus was willing to heal people. Do you see the distinctive difference? Bodies is one thing, but people... See, Jesus was healing the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. He was healing people, not just bodies. See, physicians can heal bodies, but they can't heal people. Does that make sense? They can't heal the person. 
They heal the body. And even that healing still comes from the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said, God is able to take your life with all the heartache, all the pain, all of the regret, all of the missed opportunities, and use you for his glory. Isn't that great? That God can take all of that formerly, seemingly wasted, all those years of heartache, all those years of pain, and Jesus can turn it around into a 180 immediately. Think of all the heartache. Think of all the times of being excluded. The times of even being mocked that this leper had experienced, which was just as painful probably in his spirit as the physical part was in the body. The exclusion, the mocking. Now though, now though he could say, my life was total misery. My flesh was literally wasting away. I was a walking dead man. I was the scourge of the community. Listen to this. I had no options on planet earth. This man could truly say that. Now, the reality is we're going to get to, everyone should be saying that. This man came to the conclusion, and rightly so, that's why he fell at Jesus' feet, humble and begging for Jesus to be willing. He said, I had no earthly options, none, zero, no options whatsoever, except Jesus walked into my town. That was it. No other options but to slowly die. That was it. But I met Jesus. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. The same God that spoke stars into existence. That God. And guess what? He would tell people the rest of his life. He was willing. What did you ask him? I asked him, are you willing? What did he say? I'm willing. Is that the conversation? That was it. Look at verse 14. And Jesus told him, tell no one, at least not immediately. He's saying what this is, a prioritization of his, of his testimony. First, go to the priest. Show yourself to the priest. This was, this was under the law that if somebody had been healed by God, divinely healed by the Lord, it had to be verified by the priest so they could be allowed to re-enter the society, and no longer cry out, unclean, unclean, and everybody stay away, that he would be given the covering of the priesthood to say, no, this man is fully healed by leprosy. He can go back into his marriage, back into his home, back into the family, and you guys don't have to avoid him anymore. Jesus said, go first to them. Show yourself to them. Let your testimony begin with those who know a lot about God, but they maybe have never seen this kind of power of God. Even the priesthood may not have seen whoever was on duty at that particular time, may have never seen what Jesus has just done. And then in verse 15, the report went around concerning him all the more. Great multitudes then came to hear and also to be healed of their infirmities. God always wants what he does in your life to be exponential, to multiply that your salvation should someday touch the lives of other people. And your salvation should cause other people to say, where is he? If he did that for you, would he do it for me? And your answer will be, absolutely. And many would come. The work that Christ does in our life becomes evident. The whole community was amazed. And it's not always leprosy that's so radical of change. It might be something like, wasn't this guy the biggest jerk in the office? And now he's really nice. What happened? What happened? Did he take a self-help course? No, that wouldn't help that long. It was at the spirit level. He's been transformed. He's different. He used to cuss people out in a meeting. Now he doesn't. Jesus does that change. Amen? Takes and change. This person used to be really prideful or they had a bad temper or they were... Now, what's happened? It becomes evident. Interestingly enough, over time, sometimes, 
people don't like the new guy. Isn't that weird? Give us Barabbas back. Because the new guy is convicting me now. I was, I'd rather have been cussed out by him. But now that he's blessing me when I've just done something that God knows was even a deeper level issue. And this leprosy guy, they used to avoid him because of his condition. They may eventually avoid him because of his change. Isn't that an interesting paradox? Notice what takes place next. After this life has been changed, after Jesus is willing, and Jesus then interacts and touches many others. Verse 16, so him, he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now there's something here for us too, those of us that are believers. All of us as believers, we're not saved just to be saved. We're saved to then touch new lives for the rest of our life. What, whether that is you get to live three more days, 30 more years, 50 more years, God gives you a ministry You and I, all of us, not just pastors, not just evangelists, not just missionaries, all of us are called to be ministers of reconciliation. I love that term. Do you guys like that term in the Bible? It's in the Scriptures. Ministers of reconciliation. Because we are bringing good news of God has reconciled man to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're called to do this work. However, Jesus sets the model here that you cannot be poured out in ministry unless God pours in. Jesus, who was God, often, let me say it again, often, one more time, often withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. How about you? How about me? If you're not in the presence of the Father, having the Holy Spirit pour into you, you have not the power and ministry to go out and be poured out to other people. Jesus, who is God, spent lots of time praying to God so he would be filled for ministry. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. I don't care if you're a janitor. I don't care if you're the CEO of a company, uh, a soldier in the army, whatever it is, an accountant. It doesn't matter what your vocation in life is, You have a ministry to touch the people that you will touch in your sphere of influence. And God says, you're not going to be ready for those interactions unless you spent time with me. I pour in, then you go pour out. I do it again, then you go back out. I pour in, you go back. How many of you plan on eating again the rest of your life? Pretty simple. You you know that you'll continue to eat and drink until you die to have energy to move. Well, you'll continue to eat the Word of God and pray until you die till you'll have ministry to move. Same principle, what Jesus shows us here. Let's look at the next section here. He's waiting. He was willing. He's waiting. Now, verse 17, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching. There were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. They just loved to hear Jesus teach. They enjoyed his teaching so much. Does my voice betray who had come out of every town in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Boy, yeah, they were coming out of the woodwork. Coming to hear Jesus speak. Lots of note-taking. They didn't have recorders on it. They, today they'd have an iPad you know, on him, snapping a photo, recording the whole thing. What, how can we trap? How can we get the evidence on him? But everywhere Jesus went, every single place he went, there were needs. There were issues. There was sadness. There was pain. There is sickness. But there was also equally a cloud of smugness, of skepticism, of stubbornness, of religious hypocrisy. A group that saw Jesus not as their help and their hope, but their opposition. They did not see Jesus as good news and fresh living water. They saw him as their opposition. And they didn't need his help. Or so they thought. You know, when we gather together, this morning we gather together for corporate prayer before the service. We worship together. We're in the Word together. We are not here because we're holy. We didn't come together to pray this morning because we're the holy people. 
We didn't come together to worship because we're the holy righteous people in Richmond. We're not actually listening to the Word of God because we're the Word. We're actually here because we need to be here. We actually need God to pour into us day after day. We actually know we're 10 seconds away from making a big fool of ourselves. We know that. We don't gather together because we're righteous. We gather together because we desperately need Jesus. The religious leaders, they had it all backwards. They thought they gathered together because they had it all together. Leprosy, lame, harlots, tax collector. We're going to see some of this in the rest of the text when we go through the rest of the chapter. These people need help. Yeah, those people need help. This group, we prayed this morning because we're the holy ones. We're in the Word. We did our devotions longer than the other guy. But this kind of arrogance, this kind of pride, they didn't think they needed the help. They didn't want the help of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was a threat to their mechanism, their structure. They had built a carefully orchestrated structure. It was based, theoretically, on all the truth given to Moses, but they had really bastardized it. They had. They had taken what was a pure thing given to Moses, and they had made it a, mo- they had made it a method of man, of controlling, of isolating of condemning, of anything and everything that put them in a good light and everybody else in a bad light. Jesus knew where they were at, and the truth be told, they kind of knew that Jesus was on to them too, (laughs) right? In other words, these guys were the holy, righteous teachers of the law. Moses left us in charge. That's basically what they're at. You guys all understand that Moses left us in charge. And the rest of you serfs need to listen to what we tell you to do. Moses said in the law, not that we do all this stuff, but anyway, right? Because Jesus knew that the things that they claimed they did, they weren't as good at it as they claimed to be. We keep the riffraff in line here in Israel. We keep them in line. We keep the lepers away. We keep the bad people away. And we get paid pretty good to do this. These guys lived in nice houses. They were socially well-to-do. They were the educated. They were receiving the best seats at the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues. They received the greetings of men. They got hugs from the politicians. Ooh, they hugged back. You and I can't get anywhere near the politicians. These guys could. Just because a person, so they didn't think they needed Jesus, but just because a person doesn't see a need for Christ doesn't mean they don't have one. Oh, they had a need. A person that does not know that they have a disease developing in their body doesn't run to the doctor. You realize that most people have any disease for a healthy while before they ever know it. That's why they're called silent killers. They don't know that they have it. Had they known it, they would have done something about it, we would guess. These guys have a need, but they don't know it. They think everyone else perhaps might have some some need, but they do not. Some of the hardest people to reach, you've probably seen this in your life, If you're newly saved, you will see it. Some of the hardest people to reach are the socially successful who also walk by a strong moral code. They're socially successful. They make good money. They're well-respected for what they've achieved academically. They're well-respected for what they've achieved professionally. Maybe they've risen to four-star general. Maybe they've done this. Maybe they've done that. Maybe they're a tenured professor. Maybe they've achieved something of significance, at least the way everyone sees it. They've made it to broadcast news network anchor. It doesn't matter what it is. They are socially respected. Then, if this same person actually has, according to themselves, a strong moral code, They participate in United Way. They help with Habitat for Humanity. They actually attend church at least 20 times a year. 
Strong moral code. I'm as honest as the day is long. Abe Lincoln, then me. Right? George Washington, Abe Lincoln, then me. Ethical, ethically strong. Good record. Great resume. But those people can be very hard to reach because, according to themselves, the best they can tell, I'm doing it all good. And the proof is in the pudding. I wouldn't be this successful if I wasn't. There's no way I'd be this successful if it wasn't for the fact that I am this morally strong and I have this much integrity and I have this much wisdom. The rest of you lazy bums, you're in your condition because you're not like me. Now, not everyone that yeah, thinks that way. I get that. But there is an element deep down in the heart of man that thinks that way. And Jesus sees all the way to the lowest parts of our thought process, doesn't he? And these Pharisees, they did think this way. Exactly the way they thought. But they do need to see themselves as God sees them, don't they? An anonymous believer once said, the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. The recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. See, the power was present. Look what it says in verse 17. It tells us who was there. Pharisees, teachers of the law, sitting by. They'd come out of every town. And I love what Luke then writes. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Them. Your Bibles may say a little different translation. I looked at a few of the different translations. Some say the power was there to heal everyone. It doesn't matter. It's inclusive of the guys who didn't think they needed Jesus' help. It's inclusive of the guys that thought they had it together. They were the law. Jesus, you're not. But the power was present to heal them. Do you know that Jesus loves those that don't love him? And he's ready and desiring to step into their life too? Don't become like a Pharisee. Pray for Pharisees. Amen? Even people that you see in arrogance and spiritual pride, don't look down on them. I'm only telling you what's out there. You've seen it yourself, but you still have to have a compassion for them. Jesus still did. We still must. The power was present to heal every need in that place. Every need, physical and spiritual, recognized and unrecognized. The power of Christ is present right now to heal every need in this room too. Recognized needs and unrecognized needs. And we have them both, don't we? Sometimes we have needs we do not know of. We wonder how we never knew we didn't know that. And Jesus patiently waits, doesn't he? Patiently waits that those that he is reaching out to will approach him with humility, like the leper did, with belief, like the leper did. Because you can't come to God and say, I'm coming to you, but I don't believe you. And I'm coming to you, but I'm actually very prideful about it. You come humbly and believing. These men had the same terms for healing as the leper did. Jesus said he was, the power was present. He was not going to withhold it as long as they would yield to the Spirit. Yield to the compassion and love of God. I love these uh, two titles, one of God the Father, one of Christ. Romans 15, 5. Now may the God of patience, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, the patience of Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are incredibly patient. You and I, I don't care, some of you are more patient than some of the other people in here, but collectively we're not patient. We're flawed. That's why the Bible says, no man can see God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. The reason why none of us can see the face of God until we get to heaven is God will remove that final barrier of the impurities that are still in our hearts. One of which is we lack a certain level of patience compared to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But God patiently waits for the last person to walk through the door and receive forgiveness. Amen? The last one. He waits for the one. He patiently, he looks at these men. Do you know, realize some of them are going to come around. Isn't that great? Nicodemus comes around. Yeah, he comes in the middle of the night, but he's like, I got to admit, 
first time I heard you? I was blown away. But I didn't let anyone know it. I didn't let anyone know that you convicted me big time. I kept it to myself. I'm here in the middle of the night. No one can do the things you do. You heal lepers. You raise the dead. You do this. You do that. Nobody can do this stuff unless he's from God. Tell me more. And Jesus said, I'm glad you asked. We already get John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? Unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. We get this beautiful third chapter of John because one of these guys, I don't know if Nicodemus is there this day, we don't know when Nicodemus heard Jesus, but he was one of the Pharisees, one of the rulers of the law that did come around. Keep praying for that person that you think won't come around. Jesus patiently waits that they do come around. Amen? James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't care how long a person's been prideful. They humble themselves once, Right then, Jesus says, I was waiting for you. I'll receive you. Let's close in the last section. He's washing. Well, what takes place at this same scene? These guys are all sitting around, once again, critiquing Jesus in their minds, in their scribing, all of this stuff going on, and, and Jesus has a packed house. He's entered back into, according to Mark's gospel, it indicates that this particular encounter with the paralytic man takes place in Capernaum. Jesus has come back to Capernaum. Uh, there's the same story is retold in Mark. And he's back in Capernaum, and the house that he's in, so many people have come to hear Jesus, you can't fit a needle into the place. Everyone is jammed in like sardines to hear Jesus. Of course, the religious guys probably have the best seats. Everybody must step aside, step aside, step aside. Uh, we're here to uh, listen. Everybody else on the peripheral, nobody can get in. House is packed. People probably outside the house, well outside, trying to hear, get the windows open. Jesus is going to speak to this massive group of people that are jammed into a small place. And then, verse 18, behold, men brought on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring in and lay before him. But when they could not find how, because of the crowd, let's get him up on the rooftop. I don't know whose idea it was. Ultimately, it was the Holy Spirit's idea, right? Get him up on the rooftop. How we get him up there. How many other people had to help get him up there and, and pulley the guy up. Get him up on the rooftop, remove the tiles. The, uh, some of the houses there had these tiles that you could actually slowly remove them and lower him down. And they said, we're getting him to Jesus. We think we've got a way to do it. And look at Jesus' response to them. Verse 20, And when he saw their faith, He's actually looking at the four men. We, we know it's four because Luke tells us there's four men. When he saw their faith, he says to the man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Kind of an odd interaction, isn't it? Jesus sees their faith and says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Their faith, their commitment their determination to get this man to Jesus. They had no doubt this man needed healing. They were convinced there was no other way but to get him to Jesus. These men did not want to see this man suffer any longer. Isn't that love? They did not want to see him suffer any longer. If that meant they had to take off work that day, so be it. If that meant they had to rearrange their plans that day, so be it. If that means they had to not do something they planned on doing, so be it. Jesus was in town. Priorities took place. We have to get him to Jesus. There's no other way. There's nothing else that can be done. They knew this man needed Jesus. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Everyone needs healing. But the problem with you and I is it's not always obvious. We don't see a paralytic, so we think they're fine. They're not fine. 
When you see the world from through God's eyes, it's a different viewpoint. The longer and closer we get to Jesus, the more we see people through the eyes of God. Not in a pharisaical, I'm better than they are, but a Jesus compassion for the multitudes. D.L. Moody said that once when he, he was asked, where he asked a, um, a pastor there in London, he said, look down in the streets, what do you see? And he said, I see people walking everywhere. He said, that's your problem. I see lost souls dying. That's the difference. They saw this man as desperately needing to go to Jesus. But again, it's not always that obvious, is it? And even when it is obvious, how will we really respond? How will we really respond? Jesus saw their faith. He said he was fixated on the faith of these men, and he was well pleased with their faith. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs healing. What lengths? What lengths will we go to? What lengths will you guys go to? What lengths will I go to to bring someone to Jesus? What lengths? Will we go to a greater length to find a deal on the internet? A find a deal at a place on something we don't really need. It'll be the third item that we have that's just like it. Right? But it was on sale. A friend of mine used to call that when his wife would go shopping, he'd call that fashion math. It was on sale. But you have four of them already. But I never got this good a deal. Right? And we'll have that kind of mentality for things that are not that important. But if someone really is laying on a bed and they need to see Jesus, I wish I could help you, but I got soccer practice, I got this, I got that, I got all these things to do. And the Lord says, what's going to happen when you meet me at the Bema Seat of Christ and you tell me that was your hindrance? Right? Doesn't mean you won't be saved, but the Lord will say, I had so much more I wanted you to do, right? You, me, these are the things that the Lord cares about. Have we let the Holy Spirit open our eyes and our hearts to the needs around us? Do we really see the needs? Is the Holy Spirit showing them to us? Well, He is. Are we listening? Are we yielding? Another thing that D.L. Moody said, he said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said, Moody, Save all you can. Moody's entire life and passion was putting desperate people into the lifeboat and rowing them over to Jesus. That was it. And he said when he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit from that time forward, he'd already been saved, but when he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he said, I never even cared hardly at all after that about trivial things of the world again. I had this zeal and passion only to see men, women, boys, and girls come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he was an incredibly brilliant businessman. He could, have done, he could have made millions. Matter of fact, a lot of his friends were businessmen that actually came to Christ and, and, and funded much of uh, his evangelistic ministry. Praise the Lord, God used them in that way, and he used Moody in his way. But he had a passion for seeing people come to know the Lord, and he had a passion for discipling other Christians to have the same passion. And the Lord is looking at these four men and saying, great faith. You've done well. You've brought him to me. His sins are forgiven. This is what takes place. This is what Jesus does. He looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is kind of odd as a response from Jesus, even maybe for the four men. Maybe. I don't know exactly where they were at in understanding the whole person of this man, his heart condition. Uh, but obviously the Holy Spirit had prepared this man's heart to recognize he needed salvation. Jesus knew it. The man knew it. I don't know what the four men knew. They knew of his physical condition, but Jesus doesn't say to him like he says to the leper, you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus does this for a number of reasons, certainly instructive for us, but he's speaking I love that Jesus has the ability and he can teach us by the Spirit to do it. He can speak one word and the bullet goes in all directions. Isn't that great? 
I'm going to say one thing, and it's going to plant an arrow in this heart, this heart, this heart, this heart, and this heart, and I'm going to shoot it in all directions, and what I say is going to have a multiplicity effect on every hearer. Your sins are forgiven, your faith is fortified, and these guys are under conviction. All at the same time. They were outraged. Verses 21 and 22, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason among themselves, thinking deep in their hearts, who is this who speaks blasphemies? We knew he was whacked, but this is even worse than we thought. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts. They weren't even saying this stuff. They were thinking it. Now, Jesus is already problematic, but now they're going to find out he can read their minds. I not only judge your outward exterior, but I hate to break it to you boys, but I know every single thought you have. Isn't that great? When God humbles man to a level that man says, I didn't know you could do that. I think your thoughts, and I'm going to go ahead and dissect them a little bit. Romans 2.16 says, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Every secret. Nothing will ever be hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. Every secret thought, every slanderous thought, every blasphemous thought, all these things. But they thought Jesus was blaspheming. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. This man, when he walked in, well, not when he walked in, but when he's lowered on the bed, Jesus knew what needed to be done. And he knew how it needed to be done because he's God. This man had two, the man on the bed had two great needs. One was obvious to everybody. He was paralytic, he was crippled. That was an obvious need. The other was deep in the heart that only God can see how many sins he had committed and how desperate he was. Didn't matter if he committed one. One will separate us for eternity from God. But Jesus knew everything, but Jesus knew his greatest need. Who's going to cleanse you from sin? You can't cleanse yourself. You can't sacrifice enough lambs. You can't do enough temple sacrifice. There's nothing that's going to help. You've got a problem. You've got two. One everyone can see. The other one they can't see, but I can see. And one is a far greater need than the other need. The outward need is great. Wouldn't you agree? If you were paralyzed, to, it, you would consider that, wow, this is going to be a problem that will be problematic for the rest of my life unless God does a miracle. That's a big need. But the greater need is what happens if you die dead in your trespasses and sin? There's no remedy for that. It's eternity in the lake of fire. It's eternity separated from the Lord. This is the far greater need. So Jesus addresses the greater need first because the man was prepared to receive both healings. Isn't that great? God has to prepare the heart. These men brought him. They had the faith. And Jesus said, because you brought him, I'm going to address both his needs, but I'm going to address the bigger need first. Your sins are forgiven because the man in his heart, for some reason, maybe it happened when the tiles got open, but somewhere as the bed's coming down, it dawns on him, I'm a desperate sinner. I believe the Holy Spirit was speaking to the man. Whether he'd been speaking to him months earlier, years earlier, he almost got to that place where you and I get to when we came to Christ. We didn't care what else, Lord, just save me. If I lose all my friends, if I lose my job, if nothing else goes right the rest of my life, just save my soul. And the man was at that place, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said, I know your thoughts. I know the other guy's thoughts. I'll get to them too. But I know your thoughts, and you believe in me and you know you need forgiveness, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The greatest need I will meet first. Isaiah 1.8, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Only God can do that. The heart has to be ready. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul writes, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of of God. Only God can wash us clean. Only Jesus could wash this man. But he looks at their thoughts 
and perceives their thoughts, and he says, you know, why are you reasoning? Which is easier? So they're like, how did he know we said that? We didn't say that, but we did think that. Why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise and walk. Which one can you guys do? Which one? You guys have a lot of skills. Which one is... Which, which one do you guys find easy? Healing people or forgiving them of sins? Well, A, we don't even like to forgive people, period. We don't even like to say we're sorry, so that, that, that kind of cuts that. And we've never been able to heal a single person. Neither are easy, and even if they were, only God can do them. Hmm, only God can do them. Okay, watch this. Rise and walk. Because if only God can heal people, then only God can forgive sins. So by definition, if you like axiomatic expressions, you now realize that either I am God, and you better also submit, or you're just going to have to reject, and you've rejected God. Either way, Jesus puts them in a no-win situation, at least as far as self-justification. They have a great out. They have a great out. Lord, we're sorry. Please forgive us too. They have an out. Fall at their own, fall at the feet of Jesus themselves. And Jesus, like I said, some later will. But at this moment, Jesus is letting everyone know there, because I can heal people on the outward, you should know that I also heal people on the inside. And I'm the only one that can do both by simply the spoken word. Meeting the secondary need establishes his power and authority over both. They're equally easy to Jesus. Isn't that great? Jesus, which is easier for you? Raising people from the dead, creating the universe, healing people of sickness? Yes. They're all equally easy to me. I'm God. Which is easier for you? The hardest thing you ever did was go to the cross. Everything else? And by the way, the reason why Jesus could save people there is Jesus, whatever, you and I put something uh, down on paper we're going to do, not all of them get done. Jesus put something, it's as good as done. The cross is as good as done. Jesus, it was settled before the foundations of the earth, slain before the foundation. Whatever Jesus promises, his promise is just as good as that is. It's already done. That's why it says we're already seated in the heavenlies. Isn't that great? The promise is done deal. You and I, we make a promise, not guaranteed to happen. Even with the greatest of intentions. But Jesus finishes this time with these people, letting everyone there know that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And the man rises up, he runs, he walks away, departs his own house, glorifying God. Everyone was amazed, but not everyone was humbled. We have seen strange things this day. Strange things. Things that we had never seen. But here's the deal. The power is still present, isn't it? It's present today. We have forgotten, oftentimes, the power is still there to do the amazing if we would simply tell people about Jesus. Amen? Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, fill us with your love and your mercy and your grace. Fill us with boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. For there's power to heal. There's power in your name. And as we come to a close, worship team, close together in song. But is there anyone here that, you know, I don't, ever want to take for granted that everyone here has been born again. But if you've never been born again, you've said, you know, I, I, I know a lot about the gospel. I've pondered it. I've thought about it. But I've never really said, Jesus, cleanse me. Do you know, he's willing 
waiting and wanting even now. If there's anyone at all, you say, I, I, I want to be radically, instantly, and eternally changed. I want to be forgiven. Just stand right where you're at. You may have other needs. He'd meet the other ones too, but the greater need he wants to address always first and foremost is the condition of our heart for all eternity, the condition of our soul. Are we prepared to meet? Everyone's going to meet God. Some will meet him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and others will meet, depart from me, I never knew you. This is really the only two ways. But if there's anyone at all, I know I'm probably speaking to the vast majority, perhaps everyone born again here, but if there's anyone that's not, you say, I, I want to give my life to Christ. Just stand right where you're at. We'll pray with you. No one's going to laugh at you or make you feel, oh, we'll just rejoice with you. Even if you've gone to church for years, it doesn't matter. These Pharisees had gone to church a long time. They still weren't ready to enter into the kingdom of God. Anyone at all. Why don't we stand? The other thing here, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of messages. I, uh, I was talking to someone this week, you know, any, any chapter in the Bible, and this is an understatement, you could preach a million, maybe a billion messages on because of the depth of God's Word. But in, in the beauty of all those verses, I love Jesus speaking to those four men. May we have that kind of faith, that we do what it takes to bring people to Jesus. Amen? I mean, because I'm not a paralytic, and I'm not a leper, but I can relate to the four men. I can put people on a bed and bring them to Jesus. I can put them in a rowboat like Dale Moody. Uh, we all have other issues that we need healing from, some physical, some other issues in our life, but regardless, if we have any, anything left in us, Lord says, you can bring someone to the Lord. Amen?